0: the word of the Lord from Mark chapter 14 verses 53 through 65. They took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes were assembled. Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were looking for testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many gave false testimony against him, and their testimony did not agree. Some stood up and gave false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build up another not made with hands. But even on this point, their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Have you no answer? What is it that they testify against you? But he was silent. And did not answer. Again the high priest asked him. Are you the Messiah? The son of the blessed one? Jesus said I am. And you will see the son of man. Seated at the right hand of the power. And coming with clouds of heaven. Then the high priest. Tore his clothes and said. Why do we still need witnesses? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? All of them condemned him. As deserving death. Some began to spit on him, to blindfold him, and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! The guards also took him over and beat him. The word of the Lord.
1: Good morning, 11 o'clock. During our time of study in Mark over the last year and a half and more, And now throughout our time, as we prepare our hearts during this Lenten season for what God has done for us, and as part of today's All Preach, we're going to take a brief look at the religious elites who are behind this plot to kill Jesus. We'll start first with the institution of the high priest and religious elites. We'll explore what went wrong, and we'll note their ignorance to the person and reign of Christ who stood before them. So first, let's go way back in time after the Israelites were led out of Egypt and Moses was given the law. He does two things related to our passage. The first is, he names his brother Aaron the first high priest. As high priest, the main responsibility was to, once a year, on the Day of Atonement, offer a sacrifice to make amends for all of the sins of the people of Israel. He had to go into the most consecrated place in the temple, a place only the high priest could go, and a place that was separated by, from the public by a long, thick veil hung from the ceiling down to the floor. And second, as is told in Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 18, God gave Moses another commandment. This one is to appoint judges and officers in all of your towns according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. So, of course, Moses, he obeyed, and he created this initial group of religious elites— who would judge the people with righteous judgment. However, according to most scholars, this model quickly became less relevant as time went on. Judges and kings became the ones who doled out judgment. Priests, of course, still existed, but the gathering was no longer needed. And so we fast forward centuries to 170 BC. The rabbis and the teachers of the law at that time revived this concept to maintain relevance. And they recreate what is eventually known as the Sanhedrin, this group of chief priests, Sadducees, Pharisees, elders of the law. From that time to the time of Jesus, there are reported cases of power struggles. You see, the high priest essentially functioned as the president of the group. And sometimes when certain individuals saw themselves losing elections, one way to avoid this is to have the other person murdered And so they have this history of conspiring to kill those who might challenge their power and authority. And so this this is in the DNA of the group. And so now we see that their response to Jesus is not a surprise. From the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the chief priests and scribes are persecuting him. They are ever-present in stories of Jesus because they're waiting to find error in him. They're waiting for him to slip up. But of course, he never does. Instead, Jesus points out their errors. He notes how they bound heavy burdens on people, but didn't bear it themselves. He constantly refers to them as hypocrites. And so by the time of the third Passover of Jesus' ministry, they're ready to have him killed. The possible final straw in all of this is in Mark 11, a few chapters prior. Jesus entered Jerusalem riding on a donkey and he receives praise from all the people, and they refer to him as king. And so we see that the people are turning against the Sanhedrin's authority and power. The people instead recognizes Jesus' authority and his kingship. He was the one who had healed their loved ones. He was the one who had performed miracles on blind men, who had brought insight from scriptures well beyond any member of the Sanhedrin, their ability to do so. They had to do something immediately or else they would lose power. And so we see that Jesus is captured at night by a crowd sent by these religious elites. And he's brought before this group where he's questioned by the high priest. And this high priest whose responsibility it is to offer a sacrifice in order to make amends for the sins of the people of Israel is questioning the sacrificial lamb of God who takes away all sins of all people. And he has no idea. The scriptures that he's studied for his entire life and the scriptures the entire group has collectively studied has not led them to see that Jesus, the one who stands before them, he's the one that they've been waiting for all of these centuries. They have no idea that when he dies on the cross, the veil that separates the most consecrated place and the rest of the temple from where the people are is torn from the very top to the very bottom. And in so doing, Jesus becomes our high priest. He is the one who will directly dole out judgment. He is the one who offers forgiveness. And he is the one who will bring atonement. He is untouched by a need to prove his authority and his power. And his priesthood can be trusted. Amen.
2: Thanks to the teenagers in our lives, we have heard a pretty funny but not real audio recording of a woman calling 911 numerous times. What is your emergency, the dispatcher says. The caller reports, "Uh, there are demon worshipers in my cul-de-sac. Are you in immediate danger, ma'am? She says she thinks so, because there's a man pulling dead squirrels out of his hat. He said, how is that a threat? She tells him, oh, kids are singing devil songs. They're whacking a horse effigy and eating what comes out of its head. And then the dispatcher says, ma'am, do you see streamers and a cake? She says, you mean a pagan pastry? Yes, I do. He says, that's a child's birthday party. Then she says, I want to report a crime. I was not invited to my neighbor's child's birthday party. He tells her the child in question is popular, and they had to limit the guest list, and she says, I needed to hear that, thank you. Now, the kids keep listening to this because they think it's hilarious. It's a funny meme because, of course, we can picture a small town where someone might actually call 911 about being left out of a party, leaving the dispatcher to figure out what is actually happening, and then to counsel them through it. I kept thinking about this silly story as I read our passage because we know that there is a fine line between the funny and the tragic and how those things get blurred quickly when we actually wish harm on some, somebody we don't like. We want to tattle on those that we think might harm us when we think that they're a threat We read this account of Jesus, and we wonder if we've really changed at all. Why do we feel a need to demonize other people? There are two points I want us to think about from verses 54 through 59. Mark tells the story in good detail. Peter is standing at a distance while nearby the council is trying to find damning evidence on Jesus from witnesses who have nothing of substance to say. So point one, a testimony that has no basis in truth can bring dire and grave consequences to another person. We know this is so because we have seen it played out numerous times still today. But we also know that we ourselves have taken part in that. When we slam those that we don't like or we agree with, we are taking part in it. In my life, I have said things about others that I personally knew or public figures that I did not know that were only wrong, that were not only wrong, but were incredibly hateful. You see, the court of public opinion feeds on half-truths of those that they wish to tear down. And as Christians, the Lord commands us, you must live differently. We are not to take part in the constant criticism, no matter how strongly we feel, because it only leads to slander and division. So if we are people who cling to his cross, then we must choose the love that treats others better than ourselves. We can stand up for the ideals we believe in without hurting others. When we speak ill of another, we only show who we are, not the other person. The people giving false testimony about Jesus did not say one real thing about him. But revealed much about themselves. Secondly, I can't stop thinking about Peter here. We're going to talk about him next week in great detail. But while the lies are being spread about Jesus, lies that cannot be agreed on, one of his closest friends and disciples stands nearby This is Peter's story that Mark is writing, and he records that Peter warms himself by the fire while his teacher, the one with whom he has spent three formative years, is being interrogated by hostile authorities. Peter stays close by, not wanting to be identified as someone with Jesus or someone who even knows him. And we understand his fear because his life would be way more expendable than that of his masters, but there is a point here for us. Who will stand up and be witnesses for Jesus today when false things are being said about him? If you walk with Jesus, can you be counted on to speak up for what you know to be true about him? You see, Peter follows at a distance, but he will not contradict the witnesses. Peter, who's seen life-altering, miraculous moments with his Lord, of transformation, thousands being fed with very little, Jesus being changed before his eyes in glory. Peter has proclaimed him as the Messiah who came from God, who comes to bring ultimate hope. How can he do nothing? How can we do nothing? The scripture gives us pause because we know how many times we have stood by at a comfortable distance when God has been on trial in conversations in the classroom, at the dinner table, at work, and even in churches where people have said things about him that were absolutely untrue, killing any possibility of his life, taking root around them. How have we remained silent when we could have spoken for the Lord? In the season of Lent, this particular piece of Scripture confronts how susceptible we are to tear down our neighbor while also staying quiet about the truth. This is a contrast that we should consider switching. How can we engage in real conversations about important issues but choose grace instead of spite for those that we don't like? And how might we speak up more for the one who has given his very life when he is being put on trial by people around us? Silence the gossip and the hate. Speak up for the truth of God.
3: I had dinner with a friend this week, someone who met Jesus in a powerful way several years ago, and fell absolutely in love with him. And years later, he's here at my dinner table saying, I could talk about Jesus all day. He truly is amazing. To me, this passage is one of those moments where I see that Jesus really is amazing. Not just for what we know he did, and not just for knowing his power, but for seeing his character, and seeing the God he was revealing through himself to a people walking in darkness. And that character he shows reveals a God of truth, and a God faithfully carrying out his plan to save the ones he loves. So let's unpack a few things about this scene going on here, particularly in regards to the words Jesus chooses to say and the moments he stays silent. First off, the high priest can't get a straight answer from the crowd, but he needs a public statement of evidence against Jesus. So he turns to Jesus with this question, Have you no answer? What is it that they testify against you, seemingly as if to trap Jesus into saying something wrong. But to this, Jesus remains silent. If this were you, wouldn't this be a good opportunity to say, look chief, nobody's stories are adding up, can I go home now? Or, Jesus, knowing what needed to happen next in order to fulfill God's plan, couldn't he have said, ah, yeah, you're right, you got me. Yet his silence shows his deep regard for the truth, which had not been spoken yet, so no response was merited. And although he could have spoken in defense of his own innocence, he waited for the truth to come out. The next thing that happens is when the chief priest, getting no clear accusation from the crowd and no words from Jesus asks him a direct question. Are you the Christ? Are you the Son of the Blessed One? It almost seems to me here as if all these askew accusations are just beating around the bush and that perhaps Jesus' silence is digging further into the truth, forcing the chief priest himself to articulate why it is they want to kill him, an innocent man. And so the chief priest, finding no help from the crowd and no response from Jesus, asks him the direct question, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And this time Jesus does answer, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. With these words, Jesus is referencing the prophet Daniel which the chief priest would have recognized instantly. The beauty of a quote or a reference or an illusion is that anyone who understands it instantly sees the whole context and hears the full meaning of the few words that were actually spoken. So Jesus, when finally asked for the truth, gave the whole truth about himself. I am the one our prophet Daniel was talking about. And in Daniel's prophecy, it also says that an everlasting kingdom will be given to me. Jesus referencing that scripture made me think of his time being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. And there also, he answers each of Satan's tests with a scripture. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And don't Satan and the high priest do similar things here by trying to trap him with his words? In both scenes, Jesus says only what needs to be said. And the things that need to be said had already been said in Scripture. It's almost like he's not saying anything at all, just pointing to the word of God which had already been spoken. So not only did Jesus have the spiritual awareness and grace to be the fulfillment of all the things these people were waiting for, the very people who were condemning him, but through his character revealed God as one of truth. And this is why I'm amazed at the person of Jesus.
4: Our passage concludes with the high priest and the Sanhedrin's response to Jesus' words that Jake just shared. The charge now is blasphemy, the capital crime that these Jewish leaders had been looking for since the beginning of the trial. The Israelites were commanded in Exodus 22 that they should not revile the Lord. And then in Leviticus 24, Israel has to put this command into practice. During an argument, one man has cursed the name of the Lord. He is brought to Moses, and the response of the Lord is sought. The punishment is to take the man outside of the camp and have the whole community stone him. However, this charge of blasphemy against Jesus is an expansion of the biblical commandment. Jesus had definitely not cursed God here. In fact, both he and the high priest have used alternate words to even refer to God. In the second century Mishnah, a collection of Jewish oral tradition... It says that if someone does not actually pronounce the name of God, then they are not guilty of blasphemy. So both in reality and according to these technicalities, Jesus isn't guilty. In his response, Jesus refers both to Daniel, as Jake said, and to Psalm 110, verse 1, which is a kingly enthronement psalm. In Scripture, God is seated on the throne, and those who are surrounding him usually stand, except for the enthronement of the kings, who were an extension of God's hand. First century Judaism saw this connection as a distortion between the distinction between the creator and the creation. And this seems to be why Jesus is considered guilty of blasphemy. He is placing himself on level with God by proclaiming that he will be seated at the right hand of God. The high priest responds by tearing his garments, a sign of grief commanded by the Mishnah when blasphemy is heard. However, Leviticus 21.10 specifically forbids the high priest from rending his priestly garments. Not only has the high priest broken God's command here by tearing his clothes, he's also condemned Jesus to death for blasphemy, which Jesus did not commit when Jesus was speaking the truth of who he is. Here again we see the Jewish leaders on the wrong side in their understanding. The high priest and the Sanhedrin were rejecting God in front of them as they tried to protect God's name. Then we see Jesus' enemies, the ones that Psalm 110 verse 1 says will be made a footstool for his feet, turn to mob-like violence. They think that they have finally won. Jesus has been finally in their grasp, as they have been trying to trap him for quite a while, and he's been sentenced to death. This isn't enough, though. They spit at him, blindfold him, and punch him. Then they demand that he prophesy. The irony is that Jesus' prophecy is exactly what has provoked this reaction from them. He has prophesied that he will be seated at the right hand of the Father, revealing his divine sonship. He has referenced Psalm 110, which promises that his enemies will be defeated. And he has promised that he will be coming on the clouds of heaven, the eschatological promise that God will proclaim his judgment over his enemies. Yes, Jesus has already prophesied. And that prophecy is the promise that what looks like defeat will ultimately be victory. As we approach Easter, in these long days of Lent, We need this promise. Life can sometimes feel like it's all cross and no resurrection. But here, even as Jesus walks to the cross with a full knowledge of the death that is surrounding him, he reminds us that God has always promised to save and that God keeps his promises. Death is at hand, but Christ will be victorious. So in all circumstances, We can trust God and hope in his salvation. Let it be so in our lives. Amen.
3: Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara, you can visit us online at fmcsb.org. We pray this message has been a blessing to you.